Father, we are grateful uh, to be here this morning. Uh, We're grateful to uh, be joined with brothers and sisters who have come to know Christ as Lord. And we rejoice that in your great kindness, you gave your Son to reconcile us to yourself. And we thank you for him, and we love to praise his name, and we thank you that we can do so. And we ask for a special grace now as we look at your word. Lord, we we know that apart from your Spirit's work to illumine our hearts, open our eyes to see and apply your truth, uh, we will waste our time this morning. And so, Lord, we pray that you would draw near, that you would come help us understand, and Lord, that each one of us would be built up together and challenged to live more faithfully to you, Lord. Uh, You are worthy of that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This is a very familiar section of Scripture to you, uh, but I want us to take a fresh look at it this morning. And and I want us to think about it um, together in light of a new year. A new year brings with it an opportunity for each one of us to reflect on the previous year and to look forward to the year to come. It's been a long-standing tradition of Christians throughout history to seize the beginning of a new year as an occasion for healthy self-examination. Emphasis on healthy. It's a time for us to make necessary adjustments to our lives, uh, to make resolves, and commitments to grow and change with God's help. It's a time for us to be committed, to be more faithful to our Lord in 2021 than we were this past year. And what I find to be extremely helpful in this process of self-examination is looking at the metaphors of Scripture. When we look at the Bible... God has graciously given us pictures to help us understand what the Christian life ought to be. And there are various metaphors in Scripture that highlight different aspects of our walk with the Lord. So the Christian in the Bible is portrayed as a soldier. Uh, He's uh, portrayed as a boxer, as an athlete, uh, as a runner as a farmer, and so on, and so on. And I, th- I think these are helpful uh, in the sense of we can look at them and, and, and evaluate our own walk with the Lord uh, in this respect. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul compared the Christian life to a hard-working farmer. Now, if an outsider were to follow you along for just a month, Right? They were to examine your life, to watch you as you walk with the Lord, as you serve our Lord. Would they say, the best description I can come up with to capture their life and to describe their life is that they are like a hard-working farmer. They're always laboring and toiling day in and day out in service to the Lord and seeking to bear precious fruit for him. Would, would an observer say that about your 
Christian life. That's a challenging thought. Uh, and and it, it's helpful, really, to go through each of these metaphors and, and kind of ask that same question. But we don't have time to cover every metaphor of Scripture this morning, but I do want us to look at a specific metaphor that's found in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And in this verse, these two verses, the central concept is that the Christian life is like a race. Everything else in these two verses stands in support of the exhortation for Christians to run our race well. And this was a key concern for the writer of Hebrews. And it seems like the people he was addressing had grown a little bit slack. And he wanted them to shore up their lives and to run the race that God had set out for them to race. The Hebrews had begun to grow cold and they were starting to drift. They were not running the race well and so they needed to straighten up and to get back in the race. And that same call really is the call to each one of us. To run the race well. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but 2020 has been a particularly difficult year. And if you're like me, I would not be surprised if along the way of this year that you have grown a bit slack in your effort to run the race to the glory of God. No matter your age, you are called to run well. And each of us, from time to time, no matter the the best runner among us, we stand in need of a call to renew our resolve to run well. And really, to run in such a way that we would actually win the prize. When you think about your life and your walk with the Lord, are you running your race in such a way as to win? Or are are you just content to be one of the marathon runners that just sort of gets to walk the race? It doesn't work in the Christian life that way. No one gets to walk it. We're all called to run it well. But the question becomes, how do we run well, how do we run the race that God has called us to run it, to run, and to do it with excellence? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us four keys, four keys for running our race well. And I want us to look at each one of them this morning. Let me give them to you, and then we'll work through them one by one. First, we are to remember the past. We are to be aware of hindrances. We're to consider the course And we're to look to Jesus. That's how we are to run well. So stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance 
the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. You can be seated. Well, the letter of Hebrews is in some ways uh, a very mysterious book. We don't know for certain who wrote it. We don't know for certain who he wrote it to. And we don't know where these people were located. This is different than almost every other New Testament book we have. And actually, while we call it the letter of the Hebrews, it's really more of a sermon. And we can gather from the sermon that the people the preacher was addressing were not doing well. And they were most likely Jews who had left Judaism to follow Christ and were now being persecuted in two directions. One, they were being persecuted from the angle of the Roman government. Having left Judaism, uh, these people were no longer a part of the recognized religions of the Roman Empire. And so, uh, they were treated uh, with suspicion. They were treated as atheists. They were treated, treated as those who were no longer, longer loyal to the state. And so they were often persecuted just for having left Judaism. Second, they were, they were feeling pressure and being persecuted by their Jewish friends and family. When a Jew decided to follow Jesus, he was usually, usually ostracized by his family and cut off from all of the social relationships that he used to have. Weddings, festivals, funerals. He no longer had access to these social ties. And so there was a twofold pressure that these Christians were feeling. The pressure of the government, the persecution that came there, and then the pressure of their own family and friends for having left Judaism. And, and these Christians, as you read Hebrews... You can almost see them squirming underneath the pressure that they're feeling. And it was a hard situation for them. But there was a way for them to get out. Right? All they had to do in this situation, there was something like an easy button. Right? All they had to do was go back to Judaism. And everything would be fixed. If they rejoined the old Judaism then they would no longer be persecuted by the Romans for having abandoned uh, legalized religion, and they would be warmly welcomed by their families and friends. And so while they were feeling this pressure, these dear people were feeling also this desire to escape. And and the, the pathway to escape was right in front of them. Just go back to Judaism, and it'll fix everything. But the preacher of Hebrews was not going to let that happen. Right? His desire was for these dear people to persevere. And to help them persevere, he reminded them of a few things. Three things in particular that he set out to remind them throughout the book of Hebrews. First, that Jesus Christ was far superior to anything and everything. Christ's superiority is really the main theme of the whole book of Hebrews. And we see this throughout the whole letter, from chapters 1 to 4, 
we see that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's greater than Moses. And he's greater and better. Um, he, he offers, rather, he offers a better rest than Moses was able to offer. A better rest for God's people. In chapters 4 to 7, we see that Jesus is a superior priest. That he is able, by virtue of his priesthood, to offer even a superior priestly ministry. And we see that going through chapters 8 to 10. Jesus, because he has enacted a better covenant in a better sanctuary by a better sacrifice, namely of himself, Jesus is able to offer a superior priestly service than, than the Jews, the Jewish Christians would have if they were to go back to Judaism. Right? You still have this uh, Judaistic priestly operation happening. And they're tempted to go back to this old priesthood. And, and the preacher of Hebrews says, don't do that. Don't go that way. Jesus is better than all the old system has to offer. And those who are with him, those who are united to him by faith, have all of his superior benefits. So why would you go back to Judaism? Because it's hard, right? Jesus is better than what you would go to. It's kind of like uh, the apostles, whenever Jesus had said some hard words and the disciples um, were, were tempted to go out and to leave following Jesus. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, do you want to go away as well? And do you remember what they say? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to go. And the, the preacher of Hebrews is trying to say, Jesus is superior. Don't, anything else that you would go to is less. Don't do it. And so that's his first truth to remind them of, the, superior, the superiority of Christ. And second, he sets out to remind them that outside of Jesus... There is absolutely no salvation. So the thought of leaving Christ and going back to Judaism is almost a non-thought. There is no salvation in the former system. And so, in chapter 2, 3, 5, 6, 10, and 12, the preacher gives some very harsh warnings to these people who were being tempted to go back to Judaism. Not only was Jesus superior to Judaism, but if they were to leave Jesus, to hit the easy button and go back to the old system, if they were to do that, it would be as if they were re-crucifying to themselves the Son of God. It would be as if they were putting the Son of God to open shame again. And they would be cutting themselves off from any hope of salvation. They would be, in effect, he says, trampling underfoot the Son of God. For you to, because of difficulty, go back to the old system is like you trampling the Son of God underfoot. Don't do it. Don't go back. Don't give up. That was his second reminder. And then the third thing he does in order to help the people of he- the Hebrews to press on and to continue following Christ is that he reminded them of a fundamental reality that's 
important for each one of us to remember. Namely, that throughout history, the people of God have always faced disheartening circumstances. Throughout history, the people of God have always faced disheartening circumstances. Life, for God's people, has always been hard. It's never been easy. Right? So you shouldn't be surprised, Hebrew Christians, that life is all of a sudden very, very difficult. Right? This is, in effect, what you signed up for. God's people have always lived as pilgrims in this world, as strangers and aliens. We anticipate hardship and persecution. Don't be surprised at it. And we see this truth unpacked most powerfully, I think, in Hebrews chapter 11, right, where we see the writer, or the preacher of Hebrews, gives this panoramic sweep of Old Testament saints And he highlights their faith, specifically, that in spite of incredible difficulties, these people were able to endure by faith. Now, chapter 11, and we know it as the Hall of Faith. It's just this rich chapter um, that is one of the most famous and powerful, really, verses or chapters in all of Scripture. And so how do you follow a chapter like Hebrews chapter 11. Well, what the preacher does is he shifts his focus to a metaphor. The metaphor is this. Therefore, he writes in twelve, chapter 12 and verse 1, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us. He calls these Christians who are enduring difficulties, persecution, and pain to run the race that God had set before them. Whatever their course, God is the one who had sovereignly ordained it. And rather than moaning about the difficulty, the preacher looks at them and he says, run, run, well, and run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And he begins with this phrase, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, here's his point. If you are going to run the race well, you need to remember that around us, stands a great cloud of witnesses. In other words, you are not the first one to have run a difficult race. We stand in a long line of men and women, boys and girls, who have run the Christian race. And they are a sort of witness for us as we run the race. And if we're going to run well, we have to remember their race. And we see that the cloud of witnesses is actually all the people cataloged in Hebrews chapter 11. That's the cloud of witnesses. The cloud is kind of a um, mysterious concept, it seems like, but actually it's just a common way of referring to a large crowd. 
Um, you know, when an athlete would run or perform uh, or compete in a race or an athletic event, the um, amphitheaters would be full, and around them it would be as if there were clouds of people, right? And that's what he means. He's really emphasizing the magnitude, the number of all the people who have run the race before us. And he calls them witnesses. He calls them witnesses. That's important. Some have taken this, this idea of cloud of witnesses, to, be, uh, to mean that these are people, all the people described in Hebrews chapter 11, sort of stand up in the seats of heaven, right? Or they're seated in the seats of heaven. And they're watching us as we run our race. Right? They're spectating. They're seeing us run. And that, it could very well be uh, the right interpretation. But I actually think that that misses the main point that the writer is trying to convey. And let me, let me show you what I mean. The men and women of Hebrews 11 are brought forward in this sermon uh, by the preacher as models or examples of what true faith looks like. Now, if, we're, if we were to walk through the life of each individual cataloged in Hebrews 11, we would see a very common theme. And the theme is this. An individual receives a promise. Right? God speaks or God gives a promise to an individual or to a group. They receive the promise. Second, their circumstances seem to contradict what God has said. And they're faced with a crisis. Are they going to believe God, or are they going to believe their circumstances? Are they going to take God at his word, or are they going to call him a liar and say, God, you must not be aware of the situation? What we see in Hebrews 11 is that person after person, when their circumstances seem to contradict what God has said, what do they do? They believe God. Time and time again. Not perfectly, but they continue to believe God even when life is hard. And we see this, this is maybe, um, clearest, uh, maybe clearest for us in the life of Abraham. Right, just think about his life. Abraham was given a promise. Right? God comes to him and says, you are going to have a son. And your wife, Sarah, will be the mother. All right? That's the promise. You're going to have a son. What's the problem with that? They're old. I love that the writer of Hebrews says they are as good as dead. Right? They're old. This, this is a circumstance that doesn't work. Right? God, you've said this, but the circumstance is this. So what does Abraham do? Well, he struggles for a while. But finally, he comes to take God at his word. Right? And he believes God, and, and Sarah has Isaac. Right? And then the sort of culmination of his life is when, when God calls Abraham to take the promised son and do what? Kill him. Sacrifice him. But all the promises are riding on this individual. How can I kill him? And what did Abraham do? He got up early the next day, and he went to obey what God had called him to do. And we find out in Hebrews 11 that what was going on in Abraham's mind was he knew 
that Isaac was the promised son and that all the promises of God were going to find their fulfillment through this seed. And because he knew that, he was willing to sacrifice Isaac and his thought was, God's just going to raise him from the dead. I'm going to kill him. It's going to, I'm going to be faithful here. And God is just going to raise him up from the dead. Because God's promise will never fail. Right? That is faith. Taking God at his word, even when our circumstances are very difficult. And that's really what we see in the life of these Hebrew Christians. And it's what we experience every day as well. We have been given extraordinary promises from God, have we not? We have been. Uh, We have been given extraordinary promises. But oftentimes, our circumstances seem to discredit those promises. Right? God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But today, I feel as if God has forsook me. Okay. That's where the fight of faith comes. Will I choose, with God's help, to take God at his word, that he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, or will I believe that he has forsook me? Right? Do you see the dilemma? That's the fight of faith. Will I believe God when the test is not what I want it to be? Right? That's the fight. And this is what the preacher calls his audience to do. Imitate those who have gone before by believing just as they have believed. But notice, he doesn't call them examples. Right? They're not a cloud of examples, but they're a cloud of witnesses. So what are they witnesses to? Well, when Abraham took God at his word, he ventured out, so to speak, on God's promise and lived as if what God had said was absolutely certain. So much so that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, trusting that God would bring him back. So now the question is, if Abraham took God at his word and lived as if everything God had said was absolutely rock-solid certain, did God then end up making a fool out of Abraham for believing him? Did God end up being unfaithful to Abraham? Well, no. We know that he didn't do that. God's design was not to get Abram to walk out on the plank and then, you know, make him walk off, right? And abandon him. No, God was with Abraham the entire way. And Abraham's life bore witness that God is always faithful to uphold his word. And so, when the writer of Hebrews says that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, what he's he's saying is, the people who have run the race before us bear witness to one major reality. And that reality is this. God never abandons his people. Never. They will never be put to shame. Never. When, when God's people run and obey and live God's way, even when their circumstances are contrary, even when the opposition against them is strong, God always upholds his promise to uphold his people. And so, the witness here is a witness to the faithfulness of God. John MacArthur puts it this way. 
Seeing how God was with the saints of Hebrews 11 encourages us to trust that God also will be with us. The same God who was their God is our God. The God of yesterday is the God of today and tomorrow. He has not weakened or lost interest in his people or lessened his love or care for them. We can run as well as they did. It has nothing to do with how we compare with them, but in how our God compares with theirs. Because we have the same God, He can do the same things through us if we trust Him. Friends, if we are going to run well, we have got to remember the past. We've got to remember that God has always been faithful to his people. He will not slack on his promise. He will not uh, let us be made fools of for trusting him. No. We may be made mockery of in this life, but not because of God's unfaithfulness. God is always faithful. And there is a line of history that bears witness time and time again, life after life, of God's faithfulness to his people. So we can run well because we have the same God of the people who have run before us. I remember once uh, when I went on a tour of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and I was, in, uh, under, I was an undergrad, yeah. And uh, I was thinking about transferring from my school to, to uh, go to Southern. And we went on this uh, little tour of the seminary and the climax of the tour was we got to go to Al Mohler's home, the president's mansion. And we got to go down into the basement, which is his library, which is, it really is over the top. I mean, it's almost unimaginable how big his library is. Um, but it was wonderful. Now, that's probably an overstatement. It was really cool. Um, well, I remember at the end of it, after we got to look in his library and see where he studies, and he was, you know, talking to the important people, at the end of it, we got uh, some ice cream, and we were able to walk through a line and shake his hand. And I remember I shook his hand, and walking down these, you know, this really big staircase, I remember thinking, he is no different than me. I, I was so nervous to meet him, uh, because he's this towering figure in Christianity. And I, I was struck. He, he is no different than me. We are weak men who serve the same God. And it was powerful for me. Um, and that's the point here. Right? The heroes of our faith, they're, they're men and women and, and children, actually. And, and they're no different than us. But our God, our God is exactly the same. So let's remember the past this year and run well. Second, if we're going to run our race well, we must beware of the hindrances that are all around us. Notice the next thing he mentions in verse 1. Let us lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. In the first century, an athlete would often compete um, with hardly anything on. And even now, the best athletes uh, are always looking for some way 
to have an advantage against an opponent, right? How can we, uh, what technology can we use? Uh, what gear can we have? What can we, we do to have a leg up on our opponent? You know, a serious athlete would never go to run a marathon with a book bag on his back, right? We would never do that. It's, fo- it's folly, it's foolish, and it, it goes against all common sense. However, for some reason, when it comes to running the Christian race, we often forget this principle. That there are hindrances and there are weights which will pull us down and keep us from running well. And there are two types of hindrances that the writer of Hebrews gives. The first he calls encumbrances or weights. And these refer to anything that would hinder you from running the race well. They're simply impediments to running. We could call them excesses. In fact, the word here refers to excess body fat. Um, The athlete would be concerned with that. Now, these things are not necessarily sinful. They're weights, they're encumbrances, but he doesn't call them sin. They're just weights. And he leaves it open-ended for us. Right, we, we want him, right, when we're reading this, we want him to say, okay, well, what, what are the encumbrances that we need to be, take note of? What are the weights that we have to be aware of? You know, give us a list so that we can go through our life and just chuck the things that are weighing us down. But he doesn't do that. It's kind of like the Psalms, right? We don't have a context, historical context for many of the Psalms. It's just a blank statement of truth, and we can easily map our lives onto it and, and, and find application. Similarly, These encumbrances are not listed. So what that does is it forces us to do some self-examination. To try to to analyze our own lives and think, where are the weights? Where are the things that are keeping me from running well? Listen to what Spurgeon said. We cannot win if we are weighted down. The pace will have to be very swift. And we cannot get to it or keep, keep it up if we have weights to carry. Unloaded, we shall find the race taxing all of our powers. But weighted down, we shall be doomed to failure. It's hard enough to run the race when everything is chucked and everything is offloaded. But to be weighted down is to be doomed to fail. So we have got to lay aside excess. Let me give you a a, sort of an x-ray question for you. As you think about the new year and as you think about what excesses or encumbrances are in your life that may be weighting you down, uh, here's a question to ask. You can take anything that you do in your life and filter it through this question. I challenge you to do it. Does this thing help me to run my race better? Does this help me to run my race better? If the answer is no, it's not facilitating my run. It's not helping me be faster. If the answer is no, then what you have is a potential encumbrance. It's not a sin. I'm not saying you're a sinner for that. I'm saying that it is a potential weight on your life. If it is not helping you to run the race better, I would ask, why even have it? 
Your life is too short. And, and so much is hanging on how you spend your life. Why would you trifle with weights that could hinder you from running well? Let me give you another challenge. Before you make a purchase this year, or before you make any commitments this year, simply ask, will this help me to run my race better? Will this slow me down? Now, this can be as simple as the purchase of a pet to the purchase of property. Will that pet help me to run better? Will this purchase, this investment, help me to run my race better? Or will this become a weight that will keep me from running well? Will this thing increase my speed or drag me down? Will this help me serve the Lord better in my brief stay on earth? or hinder me from the work that God's called me to do. God has called you to do a specific thing with your life. And everything in your life is either helping you do that or hindering you from running well. And so I would challenge you, by God's grace, with God's help, analyze your, your life. Think through these questions. There's, there is a lot of, at stake, and we need to ask these hard questions. That's the first hindrance. The second hindrance, though, is, is not um, a neutral thing, but a sinful thing. These are things that are sinful, and he says that they are sins which easily entangle us. The nature of sin is to ensnare. And as, if sin is not laid aside in your life, it will entangle you and keep you from running well. To entangle here refers simply to something that has tight control over you. Right, isn't that what sin does? Right, Romans 6 tells us that sin desires to dominate you, to reign as a tyrant in your life. Its desire is for you. And its desire is to control you and restrict you and to keep you from running the race well. It's like you know trying to run a race with your shoelaces tied together. It will never do. You're going to lose every time. Or it's like trying to run a race when you're, if you guys ever did the three-legged race, right? You can't do that long distance, right? You barely can do it 10 yards. It's hard. Sin, though, comes and it entangles us and it keeps us from running well. It ensnares us and it grips us and it will not let us go without Christ. And if we are not fighting against sin, if you have slackened in your fight against sin in 2020, that means that at this point, sin is beginning to tighten around your life. So think about those areas. Where are those areas where you've made an ally with sin? It's no friend. If you give it an inch, it takes a mile. Sin will ensnare you. What is it? What have you introduced into your life in 2020 that if you do not go to war with it, it will ensnare you and entangle you and keep you from running well? If you are not actively on the hunt for this type of sin entangling your life, then you are probably in the snares and you don't even know it. 
So I would challenge you. Look at your life. Where have you become comfortable with sin? Where have you made an ally with sin in your life? And I would challenge you today, with God's help, to go to war against that sin. If you need help, right, this is what the body of Christ is for. Right? We're running a race together. Right? The, the race is ran with one another. We are not in competition with each other. Right? We are all running together. So if you're over there trapped in a snare, don't cover yourself up. Right? Call out and, and get help. Come, come and get help and, 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 and defeat sin. Don't, don't live underneath its bondage. You don't have to as a Christian. So I would challenge you with God's help to go to war against sin. Don't make an ally of it. Well, if we're going to run well, we have to be aware of those two hindrances. Things that will weight us down, that are neutral, and also sin that will, will ensnare us and entangle us if we're not at war with it. Third, if we're going to run our race well, we need to consider the course. We need to consider the course. I'm convinced that many of us do not run well because we're unaware of the type of race we've been called to run. By looking at some Christians, you would think that uh, the Christian race is more like a casual stroll uh, down the Trinity River Trail. Right? It's a, it's a casual walk. It's not a race. Often we give no care or no thought to what kind of race God has called us to. But notice verse 1, the last part of verse 1. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. To run with endurance implies that the type of race we are running as Christians is a long distance race. It's a marathon. The word is agon, which is where we get the word agony from. It describes something of an engaging and intense struggle. This describes this struggle, this fight, this, this pressing on against opposition. And, and so the word is used not just for running races, but for wrestling matches, for, for boxing, for any kind of intense, agonizing opposition. But in this context, it obviously refers to a race. And he's talking about a race that is particularly agonizing. It's marked by struggle. It's hard. It seems like it will never end. This is the kind of race we're running. Have you guys ever heard of the 100-mile race? Right. There are some crazy people out there. Sorry if you're one of them that want to do that. Um, bless their hearts. Um, the race that we are running is a hard race. It's a marathon. And he says that it's a race that's set before us. You see that at the last part of verse 1. And the imagery here is a, of an athlete coming up to the starting line and looking out before him. And in front of him, he sees the course laid out. And he evaluates what type of course it is. He's able to analyze the course and calculate how he is going to run. There is strategy involved. It requires planning and thoughtfulness. He knows that the race itself will not be easy. He'll be taxed, stretched further than he's ever been stretched, perhaps. 
And he knows that if he doesn't calculate the type of race he's running, he will not be able to finish. So when I was in high school, I played football, and I was not a track guy. I didn't like running track. But one uh, off-season, our coach called us out to the football field, and uh, all the long-distance guys were running around the track, you know, in their short shorts, running really fast, I mean really far, um, round and round. And so we stood out there, and we watched these guys, and our head coach came out, and he said, um, I want you to watch these guys, and I want you to watch this guy in particular. Now, he was a uh, specialty long-distance runner. Right? He came from a family of Olympic long-distance runners. Right? So we watched him run round and round. And uh, he said, now, which one of you wants to challenge him to a race? Um, you know, we could have all beat him in a sprint. Because right? that's not the kind of race he ran. But it was a mile. Right? Challenge him in a mile. And so I, I did not want to run a mile. I still don't want to run a mile. <laughs> uh, but one of, actually, the fastest guy on our team stepped up and said, yeah, I'll, I'll race him. And so they, you know, got to the line, and, and uh, our coach said go, and they took off. And, and I remember thinking, this poor long-distance runner is about to get smoked. Because our, my friend just took off, and he was going. And uh, he almost lapped him. And about halfway through the race, uh, he totally collapsed <laughs> and had to be pulled off the track. And the race was over at that point. But we all knew who was going to win. And it wasn't my friend who was a 100-meter you know, sprint kind of guy. He, he miscalculated the type of race. Right? In his ego and confidence, he just took off and didn't consider the type of race. Friends, if we're going to run well, we need to think about what we are doing. We need to think and carefully consider. And that's one of the benefits of a new year, right? We're able to look at the race before us and say, okay, this is a marathon. It's long distance. And, and I've got to carefully consider how am I going to run? Now, what are the weights I have? What sins do I have that I need to be killing in my life? And how am I going to run this well to the glory of God? We need to do that. Now, if you're, you're sitting there thinking, I have been a lousy runner. I've been strolling, and I've been strolling on the Trinity River Parkway, right? That's what I've been doing, just walking. Well, it, it's not too late. If you are the Lord's and you have breath, the race is still going on, right? And you can, with God's help, resolve to run well this year. And, and I would just challenge you, friend, to do that. I, actually, I would exhort you to do that. This is not just a challenge that you can accept or not accept. The only people who win the prize in this Christian race are those who set out to run well with God's help. And we've got to do that if we're going to win. Fourth, if we would run the race well, we must continually look to Jesus. Look at verse 2. He says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, the race that we are running requires endurance and stamina. And the key to win is to endure and to bear under every trial that God brings us. 
And with God's help, Christians can do that. We need to exercise a sort of sustained effort that goes the distance. It's determination and resolve. And when we look to Jesus, we see exactly that sort of resolve. I was reading in John 4 this week, and I came across that line that's so powerful. And you read it, in, and you go by it too quickly, I think, often. It's, it's, and he had to pass through Samaria. Remember, to meet the Samaritan woman. He, it was necessary for him. He had to do that. Why? Because he was resolved to meet that woman and to accomplish the Father's will. If you are trying to run the race, you must look to Christ. We have got to fix our eyes on Him. And what that means is to look to Him without distraction. It's to turn away from everything else and to fixate on Him, which seems to contradict what I've been saying about self-examination. Right? How can you look at yourself and look at Christ at the same time? Well, let me explain myself. If you are trying to run the race with a preoccupation on yourself, or your trial, your surroundings, other Christians, you will not run well. A preoccupation with self is an unhealthy sort of self-examination. A healthy examination of how you're running is called for uh, for each one of us. You have to examine yourself. You have to look at how you're running the race. But just as quickly as you are through looking at your faults and failures and weaknesses and how you need to change this year, when you finish, put the period on those resolves, right? You need to get your eyes back to Christ. The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said it this way. For every look at yourself, take ten at Christ. That's helpful. Right? Think about how you're running, but don't fixate there. Right? You are a discouragement. I'm a discouragement. Right? When we look at our own running, our own, uh, it's about as encouraged as I would be if I were to run a marathon right now. Right? It would not be encouraging. Um, we, we look at our own walks, our own race, and we think, our own running, and we think, man, I am not doing well. Right? Well, resolve to change with God's help, because you can. But quickly, get your eyes off yourself and look back to Christ. We also don't want to be preoccupied with other Christians, right? We want to look to Christ. We don't want to look to ourselves, And we also don't want to look around us and be preoccupied with what everyone else is doing. If we're looking around at where everyone else is on the race, again, we will be discouraged. Right? There is always someone who is, is more faithful, uh, holier, uh, running better than you are. That's always the truth. If you are the one who thinks, yeah, I've... I, have, I look around and I'm actually outrunning everyone around me. Well, I would challenge you to read Jonathan Edwards' uh, resolutions, 70 resolutions. Do it this uh, afternoon. Uh, if you think that you're running the race well, read Jonathan Edwards' resolves. And he, at the age of 18 or 19, he wrote these resolutions. Um, and it will challenge you <laughs> to, uh, to confess your sin to the Lord and seek to run better. Uh, but above Jonathan Edwards, look to Christ, right? And see how Christ ran and compare yourself to him. And it'll drive you to, to look at him again, 
uh, for forgiveness and grace. So don't look at everyone else, look to Christ. Now what do we see when we look to Jesus? What do we find in him? Well, we find all we could ever need in him, right? But the writer of Hebrews wants us to look at a specific thing. There's something very narrow that he wants us to look at, or wants us to see when we look to Jesus, and it's this. That Jesus is the author or founder and perfecter of faith. He's the author and perfecter of faith. Of all the things the preacher could say to encourage these struggling Christians, he says, look to Jesus who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And what does that mean? Well, just quickly. Author can be, this word for author here can be translated founder, originator, or leader. And in the sense here, I think, contextually, the idea is of a leader. One who blazes the trail before us. One who sets out to run the race. The pioneer who goes first and he sets the pace and sets the example for us on how to run well. Second, he calls him the perfecter of faith. This this refers to one who brings something to a successful conclusion. It could be translated the consummator of faith or the finisher of faith. And it's of faith, not necessarily an individual's faith, but it's of faith. He is the perfecter of faith. Now what does that mean? It means this. Jesus is the one who not only pioneered the trail for us to run, or the course, but he ran it in such a way as to bring it to a full conclusion. Namely, to bring faith to its full conclusion. He perfectly abided in the Father's will and carried out the Father's work in such a way that his last words could be this. It is finished, completed. Jesus not only ran the race, but he completed it perfectly. He is the champion. And we look to him as our example and model, but we also look to him as the reason we can run the race at all. He is the one who won the victory. If we try to run looking at ourselves in our own strength, we will never win. But in Christ, His victory becomes ours. His accomplishments are are ours by virtue of faith. That is a powerful concept and a wonderful comfort when you consider how how, um, weakly you run the race to look to the champion who ran before us, not only as our model, but as the one who completed faith in and of itself. And by faith in him, we get his victory. Now, that does not cancel out the exhortation to run the race. He, He tells these Christians, run, lay aside weights and encumbrances, but always look to Jesus, knowing that your running of the race does not change your standing 
before your God. If you have fallen and you have made a wreck of it as a Christian, your identity is not in your ability to run the race well. Your identity is in the champion who ran the race already. And by faith in him, although you fail miserably, you win because of Christ's accomplished work. And this is what we see in the remainder of verse 2. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of God. On his path to, to the right hand of God, The joy set before him is the joys of Psalm 1611. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. On Jesus' way to the right hand of exaltation, you know what he did? He won your salvation. On his way to exaltation, he bore the cross for you. He endured the cross and he despised its shame. Not in a in a bitter way, as far as despising has this connotation of bitterness. Rather, the the idea there is that he counted it as nothing. What's a cross? What's the most agonizing type of torture for the joy of being with the Father? And add to that the joy of an eternity with those who have been reconciled by the work of the cross with the Father. Jesus' chief joy was the glory of God and the joy of being with him. But the wonder of wonders in Christianity is that Jesus' exaltation means that you now, by virtue of faith in him, are reconciled to God. And you get to enjoy the joys that he has purchased for us. That is what faith brings. And now you say, well, it doesn't feel very joyful now. Life is hard. This has been a difficult year. And I am struggling. And my joy seems uh, gone. And I feel cold and empty. Well, friend, you have a cloud of witnesses that are before you and surround you who testify to the fact that even if you feel cold, even if you feel like you can't bear the weight, God is gracious and faithful. And he will help. He has always helped his people run the race well. And above all of the examples we see in Hebrews 11, the chief example, the great example for us is Christ, who endured the most painful suffering by looking to the joy that was coming. And if we're going to run well, we've got to fix our eyes on Christ. We've got to fix our eyes on the champion We've got to consider the course. We've got to remember the past. And we've got to go to war with weights and hindrances in our life. So I ask you this. How do you plan to run this year? What's your plan? What's your strategy? What's your resolve? How are you going to carefully analyze your life for weights and hindrances? And eagerly cast them off so that you can run the race well this year. The time is short and eternity is long. And we don't want to waste a moment of the life that God has given us. And, and I 
want you, and I know that you want me, to run well uh, for the glory of God. So may the Lord help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and gracious to us. Thank you for giving us such a champion in Christ who ran the race before us and not only serves as the object of our faith, but the source of our faith, the source of our hope, the source of all good to us. And we pray that with your help, Lord, we could examine our lives and be resolved to run well the race that you've laid out before us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.